This week, are we eating our way to disaster? When we began this work, we had no idea about the magnitude of the dietary transition that was occurring around the world and its implications both for human health and for the environment. And assessing the world's mood, it's not a happy picture. Depression accounts for 10% or 1 in 10 years spent with disability. Plus the scientist behind the film Interstellar. This is the Nature Podcast for November the 13th, 2014. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. Let's start with two things we already know. We know that what we eat affects our health. Kerry. We also know it affects our environment. Cattle produce methane, farmers clear land for crops, fertiliser runs off into rivers and so on and so forth. So diet and health and the environment are intimately linked. But the global dinner plate is steadily changing. As people around the world earn more money and move into cities, they tend to buy more expensive foods like meats and processed treats. And these foods are worse for us and worse for the environment. So much so that scientists are calling our current situation the diet-environment-health trilemma. David Tillman from the University of Minnesota wanted to put some hard numbers on the scale of the damage, projecting forward to 2050 and testing different dieting scenarios. And there's good and bad news. If this income-dependent diet continues to rise, everything's done for. Literally, you might as well give up now. But if we all change to low-meat, high-veg diets, it looks like we could save the day. Here's David to back up those bold claims. What we wanted to do when we gathered all this data was to find out what the global extent of the linkage was between diet, environment, and human health, and where the world was heading and what that might imply. When we began this work, we had no idea about the magnitude of the dietary transition that was occurring around the world and its implications both for human health and for the environment. How is the global diet changing? As people become wealthier and also move to cities, they tend to eat a lot more processed food. They have many more empty calories, sugars, fats, oils and alcohol. They eat a lot less fruit and vegetables and they tend to eat more meat. What does your model say would happen if this income-dependent dietary trend just continued until 2050? The production of all of the food that will be needed by these higher-calorie, higher-meat diets is going to cause great greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, the emissions from the added food are greater than all the emissions from automobiles and other forms of transport right now. That's point one. Point two is land clearing we're going to need a lot more land to produce all the food that wealthier people around the world are demanding. What impact does this trend then have on human health? The human health impacts of these dietary trends are large. There is a very great increase in the incidence of diabetes. For instance, in diabetes, as China underwent industrialization and people moved to cities and their diets changed from a rural diet of of vegetables and fruits and low on meat to a typical urban diet, their rate of diabetes increased 900%. The same thing is happening for heart disease and for cancers uh, around the world. As these diets change from very traditional fruit, vegetables, low meat, uh, low sugar diets to high sugar, high meat, uh, high fat diets, there's massive health deterioration. 
Okay, so your paper wasn't just about quantifying the problem and how bad things are going to be if we don't change. You also laid out some possible scenarios for different dieting solutions to the problems. We examined three alternative diets: the Mediterranean diet, the pescatarian diet, which has vegetables and fish, and a vegetarian diet. Compared to where we're heading on our diets, those three diets would globally reduce greenhouse gas emissions by about 40%. On the land side, it could prevent clearing a land mass more than half the size of the United States,、uh, cutting down rainforest around the world and so on to grow more food. And all three of these offer significant health advantages as well as major environmental advantages. The greatest environmental advantage comes from a vegetarian diet. But any diet that basically、uh, has lots of fruits and vegetables in it, that has less red meat、uh, and less empty calories, is much healthier for people and also much better for the environment. How easy do you think it's going to be to actually affect the global diet? I mean, what are the barriers to changing the way people eat? You think? Well, I think the biggest barrier to changing what we eat lies sort of deep in our evolutionary past. Some foods, which were very important for us,、uh, that we would sense by how they tasted, now have things that taste like them: sugary taste, salty taste, fatty taste,、uh, that are very bad for us. And so our taste buds no longer tell us what's healthy. On the other hand. There are wonderful tasting foods in Mediterranean diets,、uh, in vegetarian diets,、uh, Chinese diets,、uh, and so on around the world, that are not only wonderful tasting but healthy. So I think the solution is going to come from both education as to what's better for us, but also from、uh, promoting foods that taste very good and are healthy. And I would love to see some of the major food companies come online and start selling foods that they can honestly label as being environmentally healthy. And human healthy, and that they can make taste good. And for a final bite-sized thought on this paper, I'm joined by Nature editor Hannah Granroth Wilding. Hannah, the message of this paper sounds like a no-brainer and a message that we've heard before. What's new about this? This is the first time that this much data has been collected to give numbers and real patterns to demonstrate that this is actually going on, and powerfully. That this is a major way that we can help solve some of these massive societal problems. Well, the writing's certainly on the wall. We need a worldwide control of what we eat, some sort of global food enforcement agency. This is a very important question because it starts getting into issues of how much control we want to allow governments to have over these sorts of things. So、uh, one. Aspect that has been floated in many European countries and implemented in some is taxing unhealthy foods more. So, a potentially important message from this paper is that it gives us an individual interest in terms of our own health to promote environmentally beneficial actions. So, the clear message from this paper seems to be: eat less meat, the environment will be happier, and everyone will be healthier. What's missing from this picture, in your opinion? So this is another big question in how to manage agricultural change. When we take cattle off the land, if we stop eating meat, do we plant it with cereals? Do we plant it with biofuels? Do we plant it with forest? Are we looking to feed the world, sequester carbon, power an ever increasing energy consumption? These are the decisions that might seem on the surface easy: eat more Mediterranean food.、Um, but when we get down to the questions of Applying them in our day-to-day -day lives as individuals and societies, it's not going to be easy. Hannah Granroth Wilding there, and before her, author David Tillman. 
In the research highlights, ghostly presences and invasive pasture plants. But first, this week, nature takes a look at the condition taking the biggest toll on human health, depression. There are roughly 400 million cases globally, upwards of 6% of the global population at any one time. That's Dan Chisholm. He works at the World Health Organization and analyses these sorts of statistics. Beyond just being very common, it's a very disabling condition. And that's one of the reasons why it contributes so highly to the, uh, the global burden of disease. When Chisholm says very disabling, he means it. In 2010, the WHO's most recent data, depression accounted for a total of over 76 million years spent with disability. Fully 10%, um, or one in 10 years spent with disability uh, at the global level. So pretty huge. In fact, if you rank disorders by the total number of years of disability that they cause, depression comes in at first place, above back and neck pain, above chronic lung disease and above stroke. Out of the top ten, perhaps five would be uh, mental and behavioural conditions. But wouldn't you expect that heart disease or cancer would have a worse burden? Well, of course, depression isn't as fatal as other conditions. If you measure both death and disability... Heart disease tops the charts, with respiratory infections coming second. Depression is down the list at ninth. It's still above lung cancer, though. So why doesn't mental health get as much publicity as something like cancer? I asked Dan Chisholm. Stigma affects everything. It affects the public's attitudes towards conditions. People don't want to talk about it. And also, uh, because people don't agitate or bring it out into the open, it either gets missed by by policymakers uh, or ignored. So I think if you you trace it back, that is a very strong um, cause um, for for the under-investment in uh, depression and, and in mental and neurological conditions more generally. The situation is worse in some places than others. In some countries, there's a double whammy effect, where the worst affected countries are the ones who are the least well equipped to deal with the burden. So when you line the countries up by prevalence, the proportion of people who have the condition, one thing jumps out, an overlap with conflict. The top country, with a whopping 22% prevalence rate, is Afghanistan. Also near the top are Libya and the occupied Palestinian territory, with over 9% prevalence rates. Data is hard to collect in war-torn regions, so there's some debate over these estimates. But in many peaceful places too, data on mental health are hard to come by. The WHO relies on health departments reporting information to them, and data on mental health is notoriously patchy. That patchiness makes it difficult for policymakers to know how to invest in mental health. Despite that, Chisholm says, even in some of the lowest-income countries, there's a lot you can do for mental health for a little investment. Actually, it's frustrating because there are plenty of things that can be done uh, at a very reasonable price um, for epilepsy and for depression... Uh, even for psychosis. Um, but um, people with those conditions are not receiving the care they need uh, due to uh, health system weaknesses and underprioritization of, of these conditions. But he also warns that the picture is more complex than just these numbers. There are a few things the data set doesn't pick up. Um, depression has a, a, an impact beyond you know, the person themselves. They have an effect on on those around them. It might even affect, in the case of maternal depression, 
the nutrition or the development of, of, of children. So there are all these other impacts. So, you know, people with depression um, have a worse prognosis, you know, for, for other diseases, whether that's HIV or cardiovascular disease. So there are all these other uh, knock-on effects uh, as well, which mean that it's sort of under recognition is, is, um, is really quite surprising. And also, of course, depression obviously is a huge uh, contribution to the uh, almost one million suicides uh, that occur each year. Perhaps around half of those are can be attributable to uh, depression. So, you know, there's, there's a scandalous kind of problem here. That was Dan Chisholm of the WHO. Coming up, there's real science behind the film Interstellar, and physicist Kip Thorne put it there. Stay tuned to hear from him about being glossy Hollywood's wormhole geek of choice. But first, it's the research highlights read by Emily Bannum. Ever get that feeling there's someone else in the room, even when you know you're alone? A team of neuroscientists has found out how the brain creates this feeling. They knew that patients with brain damage in certain areas get this feeling a lot. But to recreate the feeling in healthy volunteers, the team connected a box in front of the person to a hidden robot arm behind them. When people moved their finger in the box, the robot arm stroked their back. When the stroke was mismatched with their own movement, they felt a mysterious presence behind them. It's all because the feedback from different senses doesn't align. That scientific ghostbuster is a neuron. Plants grown as pasture for animals have a dual identity, as invasive weeds. Invasive species can ruin native ecosystems and cost billions of dollars to manage. A global study found that over 90% of all plants that farmers buy to seed their pastures are potential land grabbers. That's a problem, given that a third of land worldwide is pasture. The study team recommends that countries keep a list of banned plants, keep an eye on current pasture plants, and, if any do become invasive, charge the cost of clearing to the industry who develop and sell them. Check out PNAS for more. Hollywood is no stranger to sciencey ideas. Time travel, hostile aliens, resurrected dinosaurs. But the recently released Interstellar takes its science very seriously. In the film, humans try to use a newly discovered wormhole to escape the solar system and find a new home for our species. Theoretical physicist Kip Thorne, who advised on this Christopher Nolan epic, insisted on sticking to the physical laws of the universe and the latest in theoretical physics because, of course, wormholes aren't actually a thing yet. And in a lovely rare example of science-art collaboration working in both directions, his work on how to visualise black holes on screen is even leading to a publication. Zia Morali has the story. How did you first become involved with the film? Well, this movie began with a phone call from Linda Obst, who is a close personal friend of mine. We got together and... Uh, came up with a short description of a possible movie that uh, triggered the interest of Steven Spielberg. Linda and Steven brought uh, Jonathan Nolan on board. Jonathan wrote three drafts of the screenplay, changed the story enormously. Steven dropped out, and Christopher Nolan came on board 
and Chris changed uh, Jonathan's story greatly so that in the end, the story bears almost no resemblance to what Linda and I began with. When you set out on this project, what kind of film did you want to make? When we initiated this, I laid out that nothing in the movie would violate well-established physical laws. That was number one. And number two, that all the wild speculations of the movie would uh, spring from science and not from simply the fertile mind of a screenwriter, and that they would actually be grounded in science. And so I wanted a movie of that sort that followed those uh, two ground rules, and I wanted a movie that could just get people excited about science. And so as I understand it, the science didn't just inform the film. The making of the film actually led to some new science. Is that right? In May, when Chris had finished the semi-final draft of his screenplay with only tweaking left to do, he asked me and Paul Franklin to work together on the depiction of black holes and wormholes. Paul is the Academy Award-winning He got the Academy Award for the visual effects in Christopher Nolan's movie Inception. Very talented, and he leads the visual effects uh, company called Double Negative, which is based in London. In visualizing black holes and wormholes, in both cases, since they don't emit any light, you visualize them through their influence on the light rays that come from other objects, what we call gravitational lensing. And so I uh, took equations for gravitational lensing that uh, are based on Einstein's general relativity. We uh, had to do not just the lensing, we had to take account of the aberration and and the uh, frequency shifts that are associated with motion of the spacecraft. And we had to build a model of the wormhole. And we iterated back and forth as they developed the images. So in the end, we wound up with... uh, with depictions of the black hole and the wormhole that come from general relativity. It's quite surprising that new physics can come, you know, not just from a lab or from a particle accelerator, but from a visual effects studio. What we had that others didn't have is two things. We had an amount of computing power that is beyond what is normally used by physicists. And we had software that the folks at Double Negative began with that is designed to uh, give very good images uh, when things are changing extremely rapidly and at IMAX resolution, which is exceedingly high resolution. We would begin with a circular light beam that was coming into the camera, and we would trace it back uh, toward the black hole. It might go around the black hole several times and then head off to its source, it creates a very, very complex pattern with little regions where the stars are sort of quiescent, other regions where you have a bunch of stars that are whirling around adjacent to each other with sharp boundaries. Uh, It looks almost like a fractal uh, image, though it's not fractal. It's caused by what we call caustics in the past light cone of the camera, to use the technical terms, This has never been seen before, and it gives rise to these fantastically beautiful images uh, there uh, on the edge of the shadow of the black hole. And are you planning to publish these findings? So we are in the late stages of polishing a paper that uh, we have written together that will be submitted to classical and quantum gravity and will be put on the physics archive. 
that uh, describes what we've seen and explains what we know of how it comes about. We're far from having a clear understanding of these amazing patterns, but we think the underlying physics is what I've referred to as the complex caustic structure. And finally, um, let me ask you, how did you get on with the actors? Was there a clash of cultures? There was a full embracing the, this, uh, this melding of the arts with science. Uh, and it wasn't just the computer graphics people and uh, Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan. It extended to the actors, particularly people I interacted with who embraced the science. And we had wonderful science discussions. And Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, and Michael Caine. And uh, they were just wonderful to talk to. And I think they enjoyed it just as much as I enjoyed it. They really did want to understand the culture that I come from, just as I was fascinated with their culture. As much as I've enjoyed my physics colleagues, uh, this was more interesting. That was Zia Morali talking to Kip Thorne. And there's more from Kip in a Q&A in Nature this week. Go to nature.com slash news to read more. Finally this week, the news chat and Chief News Editor Celeste Beaver joins me in the studio. Now firstly, listeners might remember a few years ago now, 2009, there was an earthquake in the town of L'Aquila in Italy and over 300 people were killed, a devastating earthquake. Now since then, six seismologists were convicted after being accused of playing down the risk of this earthquake. This week, fresh news. That's right. Um, Following the quake, there was a 13-month trial that transfixed the international community. Um, And in October 2012, all six scientists each received six-year prison sentences. Um, But they did appeal the decision. And earlier this week, um, an Italian appeals court acquitted them. Yesterday, uh, citizens of L'Aquila who were waiting outside the courtroom were shouting shame when the judge announced the, announced the judgment. Um, but on the other hand, scientists internationally uh, welcomed it because there was some fear that this could set some kind of precedent for um, seismologists giving advice um, about earthquakes and that, uh, you know, there was a worry that it would be a bad thing if scientists were overly fearful about having an honest discussion. Right. I mean, as you said, seismologists have been watching this case with, with um, a close eye uh, because it does have these repercussions on what they do as a, as a career and how fearful they might be of making these predictions. Now, the six seismologists, uh, as we said, ha- had their convictions lifted. Um, but there is one government official who was convicted alongside them whose case is a little bit less clear. The government official, um, his sentence has been reduced to two years. It's not quite clear why that is. Uh, The judges haven't yet released their reasoning behind their judgment. Um, That's going to come in the next few weeks. And the other thing I suppose that isn't completely cut and dried is that now the the, um, Supreme Court will have a go at this, so it's not completely over. Right. Lawyers for the families um, of the deceased um, have announced that they will challenge it in the Supreme Court And so that will override the appellate court. Well, I'm sure reporter Alison Abbott, who wrote this piece and has been following the L'Aquila case, will be reporting back from the Supreme Court's decision. Now, moving on, we've already actually featured the brain and the gut in this week's podcast already. Now, this second piece that you've brought links those two things. 
um, pretty well. Yeah, this idea that somehow cultivating your gut bacteria could benefit mental well-being is something that companies selling probiotic foods have promoted, um, and neuroscientists have generally been pretty skeptical about it. Um, but that's starting to change. And um, this week at the Society for Neuroscience meeting, uh, there are a bunch of studies that sh- that show there's mounting evidence that there really is uh, a link between your gut bacteria and your mental well-being. Yeah, how do you go about as a scientist studying how one thing affects the other in a in a, in a body scale? Most of the studies presented are in mice, um, and one of them, for example, uh, compared uh, the microbe environment um, in the guts of mice born vaginally and those born in cesarean section. And the idea behind this was that uh, you, uh, you mice pick up bacteria as they're born vaginally that they would miss out if they were just simply removed um, with a cesarean. And the researchers found that those mice uh, born by cesarean section did have different microbes in their guts and also that they were significantly more anxious and had symptoms of depression. Um, and so the idea is that maybe lacking those microbes actually does affect their long-term um, psychological state. I suppose it's pretty difficult to establish. I mean, you can establish a link, uh, a correlation, but you know, getting to the causation might take a little bit longer. Yeah, that's right. So there's a sort of uh, cautious enthusiasm right now for this work among neuroscientists. Um, Definitely one big question is to what extent this would translate into treatments for humans. However, even if it doesn't, it's actually um, pretty interesting findings in the context of fundamental research. Um, Another team looked at mice uh, taken from one laboratory in the US and compared them with the gut microbes in mice taken from another laboratory and found big differences. And so even if this link doesn't go beyond mice, um, because we use mice for so many experiments, um, that in itself is interesting as it could uh, explain problems when one lab group can't reproduce findings in another. It could also lead to links being established that you know aren't properly controlled. All right. Well, probiotic yogurt, tasty and possibly good for your brain. We don't know yet. Um, but thank you, Celeste, for coming in with those stories. More from SFN from our reporter, Sarah Reardon. It's all Rosetta all the time for some people at Nature this week. From our team, Lizzie and Noah are at Rosetta HQ for the latest on the spacecraft's comet mission. Check nature.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel to get the latest videos on the trials and tribulations of landing a probe on a comet. youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Join us next time when Jeff will be venturing into the Northwest Passage, the channel connecting the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans in the inhospitable Arctic. Well, okay, he's not going to the passage itself, but to a new exhibition about its history and the explorers who perished trying to find it. I'm shivering just thinking about it. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Marsh.